Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Kate Norris. And I'm Thomas Craft. Whether you're pitching your business, speaking at a work meeting, or on the stage, we're here to help you present with clarity and confidence. Mel Kettle is a strategic communication expert. For over 25 years, she's been obsessed with communication, connection, and collaboration. She works with CEOs, leaders, and teams to help them become more connected in an increasingly disconnected world. Mel is a sought-after thought leader, speaker, mentor, and facilitator who helps her clients create stronger relationships with their workforce, customers, and investors. By communicating with clarity, conviction, and compassion, they are able to increase their influence and become more trusted. She is the author of The Social Association, and her second book, Connectable, is due out in February 2020. So welcome, Mel, to the Presentation Boss podcast. Thank you so much. It's so weird hearing my bio read out while I'm sitting here. (laughs) (laughs) G'day, it's good to have you. (laughs) So can you tell us what's between the lines of your bio? Um, Tell us about yourself in your own words and your communication journey. Oh, so um, people tend to not really believe me when I say this, but I was really shy when I was younger and really a classic introvert. Didn't like talking to people, was far happier with my head in a book. But when I was 17 and in year 12, I really wanted to be an exchange student and I knew I needed to push myself out of my comfort zone a whole lot more than I ever had had to in the past. And so that was when I think I realised how important it was to be Um, connected and connectable and be able to have conversation with people in a way that showed who you were and what you stood for um, so that people could see that you had some level of influence and that they could trust you. So I applied for this Rotary Exchange program and initially wasn't accepted and then the guy who was accepted, the club that I applied through, dropped out at the last minute. Loved him forever. No idea who it was. No idea why he wouldn't want to go overseas, but instead straight to uni, but didn't care because it opened the door for me. Uh, so I was then told, okay, well, the next step is this massive group interview with 40 candidates and about 100 adults who will want to get to know you, and the 100 adults will make the decision as to who gets the 35 places. So I knew I had a good shot, but I didn't want to be one of those five who wasn't selected. And there was a pretty good chance I would be because I was really shy and really quiet. So I went to this day and I just pushed myself so far out of my comfort zone. I worked the room like no one had ever worked the room before, (laughs) even though I had no idea what that meant or what I was doing. But I just thought the more people I can talk to, the more people I can ask questions of, and the more interest I can show in other people, then the better off I'll be and increasing my chances of going. So whatever I did worked because I was selected and I went. And that year really just helped me realise that the world is such an amazing place and there's mm-hmm. incredible people and you just step slightly out of your comfort zone, so many amazing opportunities can come to you. And so that was how it started. Yeah, right. Where did you go? I went to Canada. And oh. I went to a little town called Brandon in Manitoba, which is smack bang in the middle of the country. Um, thousands and thousands of kilometres from from a surf beach and I grew up at a surf beach. <laughs> so it was so different to what I'd expected. And um yeah, it was just magnificent. It was as flat as this table. The landscape oh. was flat as a pancake. Canada I would have expected mountains. There yeah. you go. A lot of it has mountains, yeah. but in the middle, in the prairies where I was, it's flat. 
so flat that there were three hills in the in the town and they all had a name. <laughs> and if you stood on the bonnet of your car, you could see for about an extra 100 kilometres because it was that flat. Whoa. Was, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember I was on a bus one, one day in the summer driving into Regina, which is also in the prairies, very flat, and I thought, oh, we'll be there soon because I can see the lights. And we were there an hour and a half later. Oh. <laughs> it's so flat. Gosh. Yeah. That would be mind-bending compared yeah, to yeah. But what was really weird, I was there for six months and then um, I did this amazing trip to Vancouver and went on the bus. And so going through the Rockies, I felt really claustrophobic and I just felt like the whole world was just enclosing in on me. And I was sitting on the window seat to get a look at the view and I had to swap with the lady next to me because I was just starting to feel really um, constricted and restricted and ill from all of this mm. land that was suddenly all around us after six months of just complete flat and yeah. massive sky. It was, I was really quite shocked by how that made me feel. Yeah, right. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So then after that, I came yeah. back, um, went to uni, didn't like it, dropped out, went travelling again, <laughs> came back to Australia, went back to uni, finished, went travelling again. <laughs> the Australian dream for about a uni and travelling. <laughs> yeah, I had a few in the middle there. Yeah. <laughs> um, came back to Australia in the mid-90s and went and was lured back to a great job in Sydney as a conference organiser and met my boss in Vancouver when I was living and working in Vancouver. And um, her husband said to me, Gail needs a new conference manager. Would you like a job? And I was like, hang on, it's her company, but you're offering me a job. Mm. And she said, yeah, actually, I do. Mm. <laughs> so I, went, I came back a few months after that conversation and um, moved to Sydney and started organising conferences for medical and legal associations primarily. And that, again, continued that push out of my comfort zone because Gail, my boss, said to me very early after I'd started, she said, well, we get invited to loads of events, loads of cocktail parties, loads of meals, loads of come at our hotel. Mm. I'm sick of all of that and I just want to spend time with my husband because she remarried and hadn't been remarried for that many years. She said, you can become the face of the company. And I was like, uh-uh, right, no, no, thank you, <laughs> because I hate that sort of thing. Yeah. And she said, no, you have to. And so she pushed me into these events. But what was really interesting was that, that she said to me, you have to make an appearance, you don't have to stay for long. Set yourself yeah. a target, either go for one drink or collect three business cards or stay for 30 minutes, do one of those three things. Yeah, and right. Right try to have conversations with at least three people that go for about five or ten minutes each so it's not just, uh, hi, how are you, and move on. And then you can leave. If you really want to leave, then you can leave. Mm. And I thought, great advice. Mm. And so that I give that advice to heaps of people because going to networking events is really essential if you want to you know, get to know more people. Yeah. But it's really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And so that yeah. three business cards, one drink in 30 minutes, I think is just a really good that's a fantastic benchmark for yeah, yeah. the introverts amongst us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And even now, like, you know, I'm still obviously an introvert, once an introvert, I'm always an yep. introvert. But I'm far more social these days. Yeah. I'm far more confident when I go to social events. But I still sometimes think, Why the hell did I say yes to that? I don't <laughs> want to go. Yeah. And so I'll still do the talk to three people, have one drink, say for thirty minutes. Because then the people who you RSVP to and who are catering for you can see that you respect them enough to still turn up, yeah. but you don't have to stay for long. 
Mm. But 30 minutes is just a good length. And sometimes I stay for hours. Mm. And sometimes I leave right in the middle of 30 minutes. You know, when you open yourself up to something like is a little bit, again, just uncomfortable, pushes you into some discomfort, some of the opportunities that can come out of that are amazing. I went to this one dinner in Sydney. It was hosted by the New Zealand Tourism Commission, and I desperately didn't want to go because I was just exhausted. It had been a big week, and it was one of the best nights I've ever been to. Oh, wow. The view was amazing. It was on the harbour. The food was phenomenal. The wine was incredible. Yeah. They flew out one of the top chefs from New Zealand to cater for this event. There were only about 40 people there, and it was just such a great night. So you would have missed, I would have missed if I yeah. just bailed at the last minute. Oh, I really like that. It gives you such a nice, clean target. Mm. Mm. I think it's so much less exhausting to say I'm going to have 10 minutes with three people than some maybe meaningless conversations with an indefinite number of people. Mm. And it's doable. Yeah. It, well. Yeah, it's achievable, isn't it? Yeah. The other thing I always find, because I still sometimes go to events where I know no one, I just walk into the room and I just find a group with two or three people on there and I'm like, who can I come talk to? Yeah. And no one yeah, I do. No, no one ever says no. Yes. Because yeah. it would be such a nasty thing to say. There's no Nicole. That's actually Sometimes. my line that I use. I, yeah. Yeah, that's what I do when I walk up to people and go, hi, I don't know anyone here. I'm Kate. Yeah. And just, it works. It works yeah. really well. Can I talk to you? I imagine there's every chance like that group was all people who didn't know anybody as well. Sometimes. Everyone understands that feeling, I think. Yeah. I'm yeah. not knowing someone. Yeah. I'm not knowing but, anyone. But I've got a one friend, Lisa. She's such a huge extrovert. And she looks at a room of 200 strangers as 200 potential friends. And she gets so excited and lit up by that. And I do say to her, sometimes you're a bit of a freak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't, I don't get daunted by a room of strangers at all. She's just like potential friends. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Who is in here? Who is going to excite me? <laughs> Extroverts are weird, hey? They are. <laughs> You are. <laughs> <laughs> you get <laughs> so tell us about your work now. So what has that led you to? How so, did we end up today? <laughs> so now I do a lot of um, consulting, a lot of speaking, a lot of facilitating, um, and a lot of mentoring and coaching. And I help. I work with leaders and senior leadership teams primarily to help them understand how to communicate, connect, and collaborate. Um, and basically how to become more connectable because when you're more connectable, which is a word that I made up in case you're wondering. Yeah. <laughs> We've heard you use it. We're going to ask you about it later. Yeah, so when you're more connectable, people are more inclined to want to do things for you. They're either going to um, be more likely to listen to you. So if you're a parent and you've got good connection skills, then your kid's going to listen to you when you say, can you clean the bathroom, clean the, clean the teeth or go to bed. Mm. You've got more influence and people with more influence are often more trusted. And so as a leader, leaders want to be trusted because mm. when leaders are trusted, people are more inclined to buy from them, to volunteer with them, to want to work for them, to invest in their organisations. What is it that we need to be doing as leaders so that people can get a better sense of who we are so that we could get out of them what we want? And I don't mean that in a really creepy, nasty way, mm. but that's what business is. Business yeah. is working with with people or getting people to do things that you want for you, whether yeah. it's working for you, buying from you, you know, whatever else it might be. So I interpret that as if you've got employees, maybe getting the best out of them. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the biggest problems in the workforce today is that people um, are not engaged at work. 
Yeah, there's, yeah. You know, there's research from Gallup that says only 13% of employees report that they actually go to work and they feel engaged. Hey, 13? 13. Yeah, one three. Oh. I know. And is that is that what presenteeism is? Presenteeism is a, is a, one of the causes of disengagement at work. Okay, so okay. Presenteeism. So we have absenteeism and presenteeism. Absenteeism mm-hmm. is pretty obvious. It's when you're just not, not physically there. Yeah. Yep. Presenteeism is when you're physically there but you're not mentally there. Mm-hmm. So often people um, exhibit signs of presenteeism when they're stressed, when they're anxious, when they've got when they're overwhelmed because they've got too much work. When they're bored mm. at work, they often exhibit signs of presenteeism. You know, if their job's too easy for them, then, mm. you know, they don't really want to be there, but they just go to collect the paycheck and they don't really... On cruise control. Yes, that's an excellent analogy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so when they're disengaged, a lot of people are exhibiting presenteeism, but a lot of people are just more uh, overtly not wanting to, not caring and just not wanting to understand oh. And so the impacts of that um, are that productivity declines mm-hmm. and when productivity declines, revenue declines and then profit declines. Yeah. So it's um, if you've got a strong relationship and if you're a connectable leader, then your people in your workplace are going to be far more inclined to listen to you and to do their jobs more effectively. One of the things that connectable leaders are usually really good at is communicating with clarity, with compassion and with conviction so they know their purpose. They know the purpose of the organisation and they're really good at communicating what that is, which means that the people who are working for them understand how their job fits into the purpose of the organisation, which gives them a greater sense of purpose, which means they have more buy-in in terms of wanting things to succeed and mm. work well. It sounds to me like it's about communicating that the higher level vision of the organisation of purpose, but also being a really good listener as well, it sounds like. Absolutely. Like there's a whole bunch of characteristics and listening is definitely one of them. Empathy is one of them. Being kind is one of them. Showing gratitude is way up there. Yeah. Because who wants to work for somebody who's not grateful for the work they do? Mm. Yes, you get a paycheck, but that's not enough for most people these days you want that yeah. sense of purpose you want mm-hmm. that sense of i've done this great job and my boss recognized it and said thank you and that gave me a warm glow and i'm going to bring that warm glow to work tomorrow and i'm going to work harder or yeah. i'm going to take that warm glow home and say thanks to my partner or thanks to my kids or thanks to my friends or my parents or somebody who's done something for me mm-hmm. because when we receive gratitude we are more inclined to give gratitude yeah that makes a lot of sense because people are nicer. You can often tell how someone feels about themselves by how they treat other people. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the first part of becoming a connectable leader is you need to connect with yourself. So you need to know what's your core purpose, what's your, um, and this is kind of the woo-woo in part. That's okay. Be, That's okay. But, but, you know, what's your core purpose and what's your, how are you kind and how are you self-compassionate and how do you, exhibit curiosity and creativity but more than that how do you look after yourself physically so do you make sure that you've got that you're eating the right foods at the right time do you drink enough water do you drink too much coffee or too much alcohol as we drink coffee it's my first for the day i'm just gonna say first for the day okay give you a little bit less smug as you sip your water there I'll be awake at 3 a.m. <laughs> Which brings me to my next point. Are you getting enough sleep? Mm. Yeah. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting enough rest? Are you getting enough exercise? Are you moving your body enough? And right. not just hardcore exercise, but 
do you go into your office, sit down, not move for three hours, or yeah. do you get up and down a few times during that period so that your muscles mm. aren't just atrophying? <laughs> what starts mm. happening from yeah. a really young age if we mm. don't move them? And then how do you, how much are we laughing? And how much are we encouraging laughter? And then how much are we getting that into nature? Because all those things help mm. you physically, mentally, and spiritually. And if you don't have all of those aligned, then you're not giving yourself the best shot at the, in the workplace. And yeah. if you don't step up in the workplace and have connected with staff, uh, have, you know, engaged staff, then you're missing opportunities in the marketplace. It really starts with you and then yeah. spreads out to your workplace. So it's a place to start if you're looking at being connectable, being a good listener, you know, connecting with, with the people around you. It really starts with yourself and that would be the place to start. Absolutely. And start with the basics. You eat enough at the right time. You're getting enough nutrition, getting enough water, getting enough sleep. And then how much do you laugh? How much are you spending time in nature? How much are you moving, exercising, getting enough rest? And not just um, – and when we talk about sleep – we want to get sleep at night, but we want to make sure we rest our brains in the day. And that can be through having productivity tools like Pomodoro, where you work hard for 25 minutes and have a five-minute break. Yeah. Or it could be, you know, we've got two types of – our brain has two main functions. One is to – and one of them is constantly thinking, which causes stress, and the other one lets us relax a little bit. When we're scrolling through social media, our brain is worrying and getting stressed. And okay. we've just got to be cautious about – and conscious of taking breaks so that our brains rest as much as our bodies rest. And it doesn't need mm. to be a big break. Just a breather. But two or three minutes every hour is not mm. good enough. And maybe, you know, walk up and down the hallway, make a cup of tea, have a conversation with someone, walk outside and get some fresh air for yeah. five minutes. Mm. You know, I remember in my one of in a couple of my early jobs I worked with smokers and they'd go out every hour for a cigarette. And while it was a you know, highly critical of that because smoking is just not something that I've really got a lot of time for, but they were getting out right and yeah. they were taking a mental break. And so... So they're ticking off five things of, the, of that list yeah, right. of looking like, after themselves. Except they were smoking. And doing the one horrific yeah. thing. So they were killing themselves slowly at the same time too, but they were, at least they were taking a mental break. They were having um, some fresh air, which mm. was being destroyed by the yeah. <laughs> Not all cigarette. <laughs> yep. They probably had a coffee or a glass of water at the same time. Yeah. So they were getting some hydration. Slight yeah. walk and. Yeah, short walk. Yeah. Conversation usually because I don't know too many people who smoke without other people around them yeah, for a conversation. Yeah. So are you recommending? I'm not recommending. Okay. <laughs> I'm not that we start the cigarette break up again. <laughs> This episode But I do advocate for a five minute break every yeah. hour. Yeah. And even if it's just to, you know, top up your glass of water or just go to the bathroom or yeah. so I hear that and I think like, that is actually quite a big list of things to look after yourself with. Like you've got water and sleep and food and like there's so much stuff that I have to worry about. How do you so pick get all that together? Pick the one that you're the best at at the moment and yeah. have a look and see, okay, I'm really good at this one because there's always one that people yeah. are really good at. Like it might be water, it might be sleep, it might be exercise, it might be taking breaks, it might be you might walk to work every morning and mm-hmm. so you've got the nature bit covered because you've got that fresh air and you'll see a bit of greenery. Um, so have a look at, okay, what am I doing really, really well? Yeah. And then what's the next thing I'm doing really, really well? And then what's the one that I might need to do a little bit of improvement on? 
and just pick the one where you're going to get a quick win so mm. you feel good about yourself because you've done something and you've made a small change and you've created yeah. a tiny habit that's turning into a big change. Mm. And then maybe work on the harder ones. Piece by piece. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I know um, when I was in my late 20s, I had a job that was really, really stressful and I wasn't mm. sleeping enough. I wasn't eating properly. I was drinking way too much alcohol. I wasn't doing the exercise. I was getting a little bit of exercise. I was doing a little bit of exercise, but not a lot. Um, I was not in nature ever, and I was not laughing. I was crying more than I was laughing because I was so phenomenally stressed all the time. And my doctor said to me, the easiest thing you can do to start getting, making yourself feel a bit better is just watch comedy for half an hour on TV. Yeah. Right. And I went, huh? <laughs> Because I had, he said, you've got mild depression along with a whole bunch of things. Yeah. yeah. The easiest thing and the quickest thing for me to start to fix is watch comedy on TV half an hour a night. So fix the laughter part of that. It was, he, said that yeah. he said to me, this is the easiest thing you can do. Because mm. you need to change your diet. You need to quit your job. You need to drink <laughs> a lot less. But they're going to be a lot harder for you. Yeah. Because they're ingrained habits yeah. that you need to break. Right. Creating, create a new habit that's a positive habit. And mm. watch something funny on TV. Yeah. Or what go to a comedy club with your friends. I know. He was really yeah. into drug, as was I. Yeah. And it was great. And so he's like, people went to him who were sick of normal Western doctors who just wanted to give you drugs for everything. Yeah. And he was just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So now you're saying that people need to watch Netflix more. <laughs> <laughs> 30 minutes. <laughs> and comedy. Yeah. 30 episodes. Oh. <laughs> Slight difference there, yeah. Right. So I think this is actually a really good conversation for the beginning of the year, to be honest. Fix yeah. those little tiny things, one piece by piece. Yeah, that could be a resolution. And just have a look at, you know, what's one thing, or what's one thing that you want to do a little bit differently or a little bit better, or one thing yeah. that you want to stop, you know, what's something mm. that you're not happy with. And often New Year's resolutions are about stopping things. I'm going to drink less. I'm going to get off the couch. I'm not going to spend as much time on the couch. I'm going to go and exercise mm. I'm not going to eat as much takeaway, um, you know. Mm. It's about stopping a bad thing and starting a new thing. So rather than thinking about that, can, that can be really hard because that's two things you're doing. You're stopping one thing and you're starting something. Yeah. Pick something that you've never done and start it. Yeah. I find that um, trying to give up sugar is almost a boredom thing. Like I almost need something to do with my mouth or my hands. Yeah. yeah. Just to feel that like snackiness. Yeah. yeah. I need a new habit to actually replace yeah. that with. But maybe, so um, Sean, my husband, who you'll meet, Joy, he is very, he loves chocolate, eats heaps of chocolate. Yeah. He works at a supermarket, so he's at a supermarket for four times easy a week. Access. Yeah. It's very easy. So he'll say to me after every shift, do you, what do you need me to buy? Do you need me to buy milk? Do you need me to buy bananas? Do you need me to buy whatever? And every time I say yes, he'll also go and buy a bunch of chocolate bars. Yeah. And then he'll just come home and, and eat them. And, and he said to me the other day, I said, what have you, have you got any goals for the year? And he said, yeah, I want to eat less chocolate. And I said, what does that look like? He said, I want to eat less chocolate. And I said, well, maybe we need to look at how do you stop buying it? Mm. He said, maybe we just need to go to the supermarket now once a week, do one big shop, yeah. a secondary shop, to pop up, and that would be never have to go into the supermarket to buy anything. And he went, oh, let's see how that works. 
Yeah. Hello, we're talking about you. Hello, dear. I like to do. Hi, talking about your, your how we're not, um, we're doing one shop a week. Oh. So that you don't buy chocolate. Oh, yeah. We're creating oh, a new habit. Oh, no. How's it going? She's not still going with it. What is it, the second of January or something? So let's change topic very slightly here. What are the biggest issues you see around communicating in teams and how do you start to overcome them? I think the biggest challenge is that the team doesn't know what their purpose is. Yeah. So the problem I see the most is that multiple messages are going out. They all have different subcontext or context mm-hmm. or different calls to action. And there's no there's no connectivity, I guess, between all mm-hmm. of these messages that are coming out. And whether that's a team communicating externally or people communicating into the team, there just seems to be mixed messages a lot. And I think one of the biggest challenges, if you want a high-performing team, you really need to make sure that they've got a very clear understanding of what their purpose is as a team and what their purpose is within the team as an individual. I also think that um, they need to have a culture of sharing and the culture of helpfulness because yeah. too many organisations, every man will themselves. Mm. And I've certainly worked in organisations where if you didn't have enough work to do, you definitely wouldn't put your hand up and say, can I help you? Because that was a sign that you were not good enough at your job or that you were putting other people down because Stick you were too good at your job. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so what is it that we need to be doing in order to make sure that how do we communicate with, again, it comes back to clarity, conviction, and compassion. How do you clearly communicate what the purpose is? I believe that people work the best when they have a sense of the end. So, you know, Stephen yeah. Covey said begin with the end in mind. Simon Sinek said start with why. And they're kind of the same thing yeah. Yeah. if you think about it. What are we trying to achieve? What is it that you want to achieve and how do you, what do you need yeah. to do? So what's your, what's your purpose? What's your plan to get there? And what are the processes that you need to put into that plan to make sure that you're all on the same page and that you have the best chance of achieving your goal? And it might be whether it's a project team or a team that just does business as usual kind of work. I really think people respond well when they know the purpose, when there's a plan, and when they've got incremental goals that they can achieve, that they know that they need to do each day, each week, each month. There's no point saying, um, so I work in an organisation that said we need to save a million dollars in the next quarter. Yep. But they didn't have a plan. So I said, well, that means that each individual in the team needs to save $7.32 a day. So what is it? Let's create a communication plan that says everybody needs to save $7.32 a day. And maybe that means that instead of taking a taxi to get to your next meeting, that's going to cost you $120, maybe you catch the train. And it might take a little bit longer, but you can do some work on the train, you can do some reading, you can do some thinking, and it will cost you $10. Or maybe you can carpool. Or maybe you can just not buy post-it notes and use scraps of paper. Or maybe instead of replenishing an already full station recovered, you look at what you've got and use it all down and then you look at what you really need. I think the more you can understand what that purpose is and what it is that you need to be doing, then the more successful you're going to be, whether it's a sales target or whether it's um, a customer service target or whether it's a productivity target or whatever it might be. So I find that fascinating because I used to work in internal budgeting and it was only ever a top-down approach of we need to save a million dollars in three months. And it came from 
overall, how do you save a million dollars? It didn't start from what does each person need to save? That's a really interesting way of looking at it because I've never considered. This company didn't go for it, which I thought was a real shame. Really? Because the consequence of not saving a million dollars was going to be 10 jobs. Oh. And yet they, were, yeah. they refused to communicate that because they didn't want people to be scared. Yeah. Whereas I was trying to say to them, people already know that there's uncertainty. Yeah. We've had our fourth quarter in a row that's been a fiscal loss that, and we've never had that as a company before. And so people already know they're not stupid. They read the, you know, they read the financial mm-hmm. papers. They look at the stock market. They know what's going on. Yeah. What are you doing to make them feel they've got some control over what their future is? Yeah. And people will, people like to feel that they have a sense of control. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was actually a Simon Sinek talk. We actually did a speech breakdown on it, but he talked about a company that tried that needed to save and they um, made everyone take a certain amount of unpaid leave and then everyone banded together and they ended up saving more than they actually needed to because people were working together. It was that psychology better that we should all suffer a little than any one of us suffer a lot. Yeah. 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 yeah so I would have been very interested to see yeah. how it, how it um, actually worked, but, but like you said, they didn't go for it. They didn't go for it. And I remember I was um, hmm. this company that, where I did business this particular time was in Sydney. And I had to go to um, out to Blacktown to one of their offices. And I said to the receptionist when I left, I've got a lift out there, but I had to get a taxi back into the city or get my own way into the city. And I said to the receptionist, where's the nearest train station? So we get the train to town. She went, that's not very safe. I'm like, what? It's 11 o'clock in the morning. How unsafe could it be? City trains. Exactly. Blacktown. But, you know. I it like doesn't mean anything it, to me personally. Not, not, it, it, it had a reputation of being a bit rough, okay. but it was the middle of the day. Yep. And I said, well, I can get, where's the nearest train? I'll just get a cab to the train station. She said, why don't you just get a taxi into the city? And I said, well, because we're trying to save money. She went, well, everybody else does. <laughs> and I just thought, mm. oh, that's part of the problem with this culture is that there's a spending culture yeah. and not a looking after the money. And I said to her, would you catch a taxi if you were paying for it out of your own pocket? No, of course not. Mm-hmm. We can, yeah. so we will. And I said, well, my view is if I'm not going to pay for it myself, I'm not going to mm-hmm. expect the company to pay for it. Yep. With a couple of exceptions, obviously. <laughs> but that was not one of them. Um, and so I ended up getting a cab halfway and the train the rest of the way. And it was took the same amount of time because that traffic in Sydney is horrible mm-hmm. all the time. And I just thought that was really interesting. It, and I just thought... One comment is can give such an insight. Yeah, hey? yeah, yeah, and there were lots of those insights. But it was an organisation that didn't have strong leadership, and it was an organisation where there were Chinese whispers happening all over the place, and different. Even in the division I was in, which was a big division, there were different business units that just had completely different ways of doing things and communicating with customers. When you know, if you were a customer in across two different business units you'd have two different sets of processes that you had to go through as a customer in order to do business with them. So there were so many fundamental things that were just not working, but they didn't really understand that that was a problem because they didn't put themselves in the shoes of their customers. It's a little bit the idea that when you're on the inside of the jar, you can't see the ingredients list. Oh, I love that. Somebody, I think somebody outside can tell you what's inside the jar. Oh, yeah. That's going, to, that's going to be in Mel's next workshop, yeah. I can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Which actually, let's, let's talk about that for a moment because we've talked a little bit about what I would sort of consider conversation and communication skills. Do you see, a, and obviously you give presentations and you're a speaker, mm. 
Do you see a difference between conversation and communication and, say, presentation skills? No, because you still have an audience. When, when you're having a conversation mm. with someone, even if it's just one-on-one, then that person's your audience. If you're standing on a stage in front of 10,000 people, you've just got a big audience. If you're – one of my mentors said a confused mind says no, and I don't think that matters whether or not you're saying it to one person or you're saying it to 10,000 people. As soon as you start to – talk to people or communicate in a way that's confusing, the other people, the people who are listening to you are just going to switch off. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're right. And I think communication skills, you know, when I started presenting on stage, I you know, everybody has a first time that they're on stage. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> you've got no idea what you're doing. I know oh, I have no idea what I was doing. And my first time was when I was on my Rotary Exchange year. Oh, yeah. I did 40 or 50 presentations in that year talking about what it was like living in Australia, what it was like growing up in Australia, the difference between Australia and Canada, um, and a whole bunch of other things, which I knew a lot about, so that made it easier. But I still had never held a microphone. I didn't know how to own a stage. (laughs) Um, Some people might say I still don't, but (laughs) I'm a lot better. (laughs) And I didn't know that presentation skills was a thing. I was just told by my Rotary Club at my first breakfast, get up and say hello and introduce yourself. Yeah. Here's a microphone. I'm just like, hello, use this. Yeah. <laughs> That's all happening. Yeah. And I knew I'd have to, but how do you prepare when you've never done it before? So I just used the skills that I started to develop of having conversations with people and I just pretended that the people in the room was just a bigger group of people I knew. And because they were bigger, I just had to talk into a microphone to do it. And so I used my normal speaking style and I used language that I would normally use and I used mannerisms that I would normally use and I talked with my hands and I had to work out pretty quickly that when you've got a handheld microphone, you can only talk with one hand. One-handed gestures, um, yeah. While I lapel microphones, and probably needs to develop a dress for women <laughs> that, that makes lapel microphones easy to use. <laughs> but it was, like, I don't think there's, I mean, there's obviously there's some differences but at the end of the day you still want to be heard you still want to get your point across and you want to encourage people to take some kind of action and whether that action is to listen to you or to go away and do something depends on the nature of the conversation that you're having and I really believe that when I'm standing on stage that's just a bigger platform for me to have a conversation Hmm. and it's often um, a slightly more one-sided conversation because I've got the microphone but there's ways that you can engage your audience and have them participate in it, in that conversation, even when you're on stage with 10,000 people in the room. So you're just having a conversation with 10,000 individuals. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to the one. Yeah, so you just said um, there's ways to have them involved. How, mm. Like what, for example, if you've got 10,000 people? So you could ask rhetorical questions. You could say... You could set up set a scenario and ask questions and say just for a couple of seconds talk to the person next to you, or talk to the two or three people next to you. Um, you could there's apps you can get there's technology where you can put questions up on screen and they can um, push a button and you can get a response from the group. Yeah. So there's loads of different ways yeah. that you can engage the room without. And, okay, it's not a one-on-one conversation, but you, and you can also, you know, have a show of hands who believes this or who yeah. thinks this or who's done this or who's experienced yeah. this. Um, you can say everybody stand up and sit down when these, when you, you know, when you answer no to these yeah. questions. There's ways that you mm. can have that, make it a two-way 
thing when you've got a big group of people in front of you. It's harder and you need to think it through and you can't do it. Um, You have to be prepared for any kind of response because when you're having a one-on-one conversation with someone and they disagree with you, it's a lot easier to have that argument, I guess, without having a lot of people listening in. If you get heckled when you've got 10,000 people or if you're in the room, how do you respond to that? So you've just got to be more prepared and think through more all the different scenarios that could happen when you try to have an, you know, an interactive conversation with a lot of people when you're on stage. Yeah. yeah. I really like something you said there, which is about getting interaction from the audience. And I think often that can be misconstrued to think interaction from the audience means you have to get people like shouting something out or oh, no. jumping up and down around the room, but often just getting people to think and you know internally engage with what's going on or even that talk to the person next to them like those you know interactivities work yeah. and they're not you know some weird crazy flamboyant thing or pushing yeah. people into strange situations or it could even be you know think of a time when you, when this happened to you or when you did this or when you were in this situation write down two or three things that you could have done differently mm. if you feel comfortable share it with the person next to you if you don't don't yeah, you know, you don't need to make it. One of the things that I really hate about a lot of presentations I've been to is that the present the presenter is an extrovert and assumes that the audience is as well. Yes, and so they do these rah 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 presentations and they want you to be rah rah rah. No, very few introverts want to be rah rah rah, especially if it's first up in the morning and you haven't had enough coffee. Let's be serious. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I am. Thomas just has that is confident. I'm quite an extrovert, and I actually dislike being rah rah rah. I'm quiet extrovert. If that but it, it also yeah. just comes down to the amount of rapport you have with the speaker, or the speaker yeah. has with you, rather. Is like, yeah, you know. Obviously, I always say to people, like, if I asked you for a thousand dollars today, the chance that you'd say no is pretty high because mm. we've had you know an hour of interaction. If it's your husband, like, yeah, sure. Mm. Like, it's the same with an audience. If we've only known each other for a few moments through this stage audience interaction, mm. I don't trust you to enough to interact and do some crazy stuff. Yeah. 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 You build that with the audience yeah. at very least. Exactly. A good example of that is I did a workshop in Canberra um, a few weeks ago, and it was a small group, but we, we got pretty deep really quickly around um, what we talked about, how do you connect with yourself. And one of the women in the room was just um, folded back in the chair with a bit of a belligerent expression on her face. Mm. And I just thought, I don't expect you to talk to me because I haven't earned your trust and I get that. And so I asked them to do a few, you know, think about these things, write these things on post-it notes, come and put them up on the board, wherever you want on the board so that we can't recognise who wrote what and then we can have a conversation about what's up on the board. And then I said, you know, if you want, if you're willing to talk about what you've said, let's have a conversation. And this woman didn't start revealing things until after lunch because it took that long for her to feel confident and comfortable in the room. I think part of the other issue was that other people in the room were in her team at work and her supervisor was in the room. But we created this safe space, so the vulnerabilities by the end of the session were amazing. And I was just blown away by some of the things that these women were prepared to share. And... Mm. Because we built this base of trust. Yeah. And you can't expect people to open up to you the moment they meet you. Yeah. Some people do. Like, some people absolutely do. Yeah. 
I've met people who then shared their innermost, deepest thoughts and fears and then said to me, holy shit, I've never told anybody that. I don't know why I just told it to you. And I was gone, I have the face. <laughs> and sometimes maybe they would be open one-on-one, but when you're in a group, there's so many more people that you're exposing yourself to. And you really need to, it's such a responsibility when you're leading that conversation, whether it's, you know, in a small group or a big group, you can't make the assumption that everybody's going to want to join in. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you consider a portion of the people in the room were there because they were told they had to go. Yeah. Yeah. And so that gets them offside. I think it's a classic mistake that we can make is assuming, like if someone's sitting there, like you said, arms crossed, maybe not the nicest mm. expression, you can write them off pretty quickly as sour or obnoxious mm. or whatever. And maybe they're just... Maybe they've just got a good resting bitch face and that's yeah. the way that they think and process. Yeah. And they're actually just feeling a little bit scared and actually need more love than yeah. than some of the others even. Or maybe they had a big fight with their partner that morning. Yeah. Maybe they've got a sick parent or maybe they've got, you know, you don't know what's happening in people's worlds when they walk into the room that you're in. Yeah. And I think you can't assume that everybody's worlds are happy because yeah. everybody's worlds are not. And, you know, we know from research that Beyond Blue um, says that one in five Australians will suffer from depression this year. Yeah. And so if we know that, then we know that probably 20% of that room at the moment have got some sort of mental health problem that they're grappling with. Yeah. And so they're just all sorts of things that we don't know about who's in the room that we need to be conscious of and sensitive to when we start a conversation or when we're presenting or when we are seeking audience interaction or reaction. Yeah. So lots to think about there, isn't there? Just a lot, mm. of, a lot of stuff going on with people. And it's the same in your work. You know, it's the same in your work team. If you're a people manager or a leader in the workplace, you have to know that you will have people in your team who have mental health issues that they're dealing with right now and today. Yeah. Because one in five do. Yeah. And so how do you demonstrate that you've got empathy for that without singling out individuals? How do you demonstrate kindness? Yeah. yeah. How do you show gratitude? How do you encourage people and help people feel included? Because one of the biggest social problems we have today is social isolation and loneliness. And it's not just old people who are retired. The fastest growing demographic <laughs> demographic of people who report being lonely are people in their 20s and early 30s. And so what do we do to make them feel less lonely? Because when you're lonely, you've got stress, you've got increased anxiety, and they're mm. the two precursors to depression. And depression and anxiety are the biggest causes of long-term absence from the workplace due to illness. Hmm. Yeah, right. So the solution really is within the workplace there. When we talked before about the collaboration, mm. having that sense of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But then, you know, we talked earlier about food and diet and exercise and movement and sleep and rest and all sorts of things. Yeah. Mental health and physical health is so closely interrelated that if your physical health isn't right, then that can easily tip you into mental health issues. And when your mental health isn't quite right, that absolutely can tip you into physical health issues because when you're depressed, you don't want to eat properly, you don't want to eat at all. Yeah. You probably drink too much alcohol, probably too much caffeine. You just want to burrow, burrow your head under the pillows and not get up. And so that's this vicious cycle. Yeah. So as humans and as employers, but mostly as humans, 
what can we do to look out for other humans and how can we help them feel more included and check in on our neighbours and look at look out for our friends and if you've got friends who live alone, you know, how often do you say, hey, let's catch up for a drink or give them a call and say hello other than looking at their lives on Facebook or on Twitter <laughs> yeah. or Instagram because they're not real. That's the highlight reel. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like you know them, you feel like you know what's going on with yeah. them. It removes that feeling of maybe I should catch up with them. Yeah. Because yeah. you actually don't know what's going on. No. No. You don't know deep down. Right, so we, we talked about the social media side and seeing people's highlight reels and that they're not necessarily real life. So then what is the biggest difference about communicating online versus in person? How do you communicate online effectively? When you sent me the questions, you said, can you communicate effectively with just text using social media? And I was wrote no, which is not oh. a helpful answer to anybody here. <laughs> <laughs> um I think you can. Like I've developed some amazing relationships online and I've got this huge, beautiful group of friends that I've amassed over 11 years of being on Twitter and some of them I've met in real life and a lot of them I haven't and will never meet because we live in different cities in different countries. But there's two things that I think being online allows you to do that face-to-face doesn't and one of them is that it can allow you to be a lot more open and honest because you're not eyeballing the person you're having a conversation with. And I remember asking a question on Twitter a few years ago um, and I said, how do people, why do people use Twitter? And this guy said to me, I'm really shy and very socially awkward, but my job means I have to be in social situations that I'm not comfortable with. And so I use Twitter to practice small talk. Huh. And I thought... That is so freaking clever. Mm. That is so clever. And I think back to all of the people I've met who I first met on Twitter and who I've then met in the real world, and the vast majority of the people were just as lovely as I expected them to be. But there was this one woman I met, and she was really lovely, but on Twitter she's outgoing and she's gregarious and she's chatty and she's witty and she's so smart and in real life she could barely have a she could barely say three words to me face to face it was the most excruciating coffee meeting i've ever had because she's so incredibly shy and so not a real people person yeah which is interesting given that she works with people in her job but um i just thought that's she was the first person who seemed to have this whole other persona on twitter compared to her real-world persona. Um, So I really think that you can communicate effectively online, but you have to put a greater amount of effort into it and you have to be a lot more careful about what you say because it's really easy for your words to be misconstrued when Mm. they're written down. And that's the same for email. You know, if you've got something important to say to somebody, you should just pick up the phone and have a conversation or meet with them and do it face-to-face because it's too easy for words to be misconstrued on a piece mm-hmm. of paper or on a screen mm-hmm. because you can't usually get a sense of – get a tone across. Yeah. And if you're joking, then that often doesn't come across. And yes. a great example of that is when Sean and I were on the couch one night just – bagging each other out on Twitter and one of my Twitter mates who didn't know Sean and we've got different last names sent me a private message and said who's this Sean character do I need to come <laughs> oh, and beat wow. him up 
And, and I, said, uh, was. I said, he's my husband, he's sitting five feet from me, and we're just bagging each other out yeah, in right. real life as well as on Twitter. And I showed him because I'd said to him quite often, your sense of humor doesn't come across as funny on Twitter. It comes yeah. across as insulting and degrading, and you need to be conscious of mm. what you're saying because it's easy to misconstrue. When you don't There's have that jovial no tone misconstrue in your voice. when people see you, yep. but when it's written – they don't know you, yes. and so they don't know what you're like. And it also exists forever. Yes. Like voice yes. is ephemeral, like that is happens once and it's gone. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing that people often forget about social media, that what happens on social media stays there forever. A great example of that is probably about 10 years ago, the social media manager for Westpac accidentally tweeted from the Westpac account, yeah. I'm so over it today. Yep. And – Oops. For about two years afterwards, people would tweet, I'm having a Westpac day. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was brilliant. But Westpac whipped that, that down within about 20 minutes of it going up. Eventually, you did an apology. But if you Google Westpac, I'm over it, yep. you'll get tons of screenshots, screenshots yeah. because yeah. people can save things. And there's blog posts that were written about it. And I talk about it all the time because mm-hmm. I think it's just fantastic. But, you know, <laughs> what's happened? And there's no an- anonymity. There was a guy in the US who um, was an aide to, I think, a senator, mm-hmm. and he was saying all sorts of slanderous things about him on Twitter and, you know, saying, I'm going to come and kill you, I'm going to come and create personal harm in your world. And he tweeted from an, anonym, an anonymous account, mm. but the FBI found him yeah. because there's no such thing as anonymity yeah. on, in the, on the internet. Some people are harder to find, but you will be found if you do and say the wrong thing and somebody wants to take action. And I think people don't realise that either. And I also think that people forget that it's a lot of people can see who you are and what you're saying. And I've got, you know, one friend of mine about five years ago just had this massive rant about her in-laws on Twitter over Christmas. And I just thought, oh, love, you're not doing yourself any favours with this thread of conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Just because people aren't liking your stuff does not mean they're not yeah. seeing it. Exactly. And people work. I had someone ring me yeah. last year and said to me, I'd love to talk to you about coming and doing some work with us. I said, great. How did you get my name? She said, I've been following you on Twitter for seven years. Wow. And I wasn't connected to her. I wasn't following her. I didn't know who she was. She said, I've never engaged with you. I've just followed you for a really long time and I love what you do and I love what you say and I love what you stand for and I've been waiting for a time when I knew that I could make this call and say, can we work together? Yeah. And I thought, seven years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. But that's a lot. There's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people who just watch and listen and observe. Yes. And you never know who that's going to be. You never know what opportunity that's going to give you or where that's going to um, take an opportunity away from you. Yes, yes. So, you know, if you're not cautious with what you say and what photos you post and what language you use, you know, at the moment it's very easy to slag off about politicians. It's very easy to have a very negative opinion about a lot of people and a lot of things that are happening in the world. But if you want a job in government and they search your Twitter and they see that you've heavily criticised the government... That could go against you because part of the government's code of conduct is you can't comment on operational matters. And if you do, it's a sackable offence. 
Right. Wow. Okay. And yet a lot of people in government don't know that. A lot of people who want to work in government one day don't know that. Yeah. And it's the same with all, every company now, every major company has a social media policy. Yeah. about what you can and can't say and a lot of it's very um a lot of it could be seem to be subjective and so you just need to be cautious yeah so what's your overarching rule then just to be polite respectful at all times sometimes it's very hard oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um be kind yeah. yeah yeah i just say just be kind and think that the people on the other end of that they're humans they've got feelings they've got emotions you don't know what they're doing because people do observe. People watch. And people always watch. someone watching. Yeah. 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 Yes, that is very good to keep in mind mm. always. So my next question is, is there a way that people can start using social media if they maybe don't know what to post, they don't want to be open? Where do they start? Yeah. I think if you're wanting to increase your influence and use social media as a way mm-hmm. of doing that, then you need to look at who is it that you want to be seen Um, Who is it that you want to influence Mm -hmm. and where are they on social media? So if you're wanting to influence the people in your workplace, what do you need to do with your online internal communication platform? So do you use Yammer? Do you use Facebook Workplace? How can you be more involved in that and be seen more as a leader on that platform and Mm -hmm. take the lead to use that platform? If you're wanting to be influenced by potential clients or um, prospective customers, where do they hang out? You know, if your market is other business people, then you need to be on LinkedIn. If yeah. you're selling a product that um, like is in the travel industry or in the food industry, then maybe you need to be on Instagram. If your target market is mums, then maybe you need to be on Facebook. So yeah. drill into who's your target market and who are the people that you want to have better relationships with and go where they go. You know, if it's your kids, maybe it's TikTok if they're young kids. <laughs> yeah. kids you know, think about who they are and where they are and how you can get to know them more. And then um, in terms of things to share, just be human, share stories and share things that resonate with you and share your thought leadership on, on your industry or on what's happening in your workplace or, you know, what you're thinking and feeling about different things that are happening in our world. People look to our leaders to be – we expect our leaders to be seen and heard – and we expect them to mm. lead. And whether you're um, the prime minister of a country or whether you're an emerging leader in a small business who wants to play a bigger role in their industry, the more you can start publicly talking about the things that are important to you and that will help your industry or your world grow to be a better place, then people will take note. Mm. So be human and be kind. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're really great rules to live by. I think so too. Offline as well. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Very much. All right. So let's start winding up a little bit. So a question we always ask everybody, is there a book or resource that's had an impact on the way that you speak and facilitate? Oh, I think um, I love the first time facilitated podcast with Leanne Hughes, and that's had a massive impact on how I think about facilitation and how I think about speaking. But in terms in more broad terms, I think one of the most influential people has been Wendy McCarthy, and I've brought her book to show you both. Um, I first heard her speak probably in about 2001 or two Mm -hmm. um, at QT in Brisbane, and she shared her story, and that was about the time that her her memoirs came out. And Wendy McCarthy is – she was on the board of the ABC. She started – Planned Parenthood organization in New South Wales and she's 
had been a mum, been a wife. But one of the things that she said that she said when I first heard her speak at QT was she was asked to be the, on the ABC, on the board of the ABC, and I think she was asked to be the chair of the ABC. And she said, oh, no, why would you ask me? I don't have A, B, C, and D, and I couldn't possibly because I'm not good enough or I'm not, you know, experienced enough. And the man who invited her into that role said, Wendy, I believe you can do this. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked you. Why don't you believe you can do it? Just say yes. Don't say no because you're scared. Say no, you know, if you want to say no, give me a valid reason. Being scared is not a valid reason. Um, And she said it was just such, it, it shaped how she made decisions about things after that. And that, I've always remembered that. And I've always thought, because often as women in particular, our first instinct is to say no when we're given these big opportunities because we don't believe we're good enough. And it made me think, why am I saying no to something? Am I saying no because I really don't want to do it? Or am I saying no because I don't think I'm good enough? Yeah. And that's just shaped every single decision I've made in the last 20 years. That's a fantastic quote. Mm. Being scared is not a valid excuse. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Remind, yeah. Reminds me of one I read a while ago, which was, if you can't beat fear, then just do it scared. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 So her book's oh. called Don't Fence Me In. And I remember I borrowed it from the library and just loved it. And then I bought it and yeah. I read it about half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she hasn't had the easiest life in some aspects, but mm-hmm. in other aspects, she seems to have had it all come together. And it's just, it was just, I don't know, it, it just spoke to me in ways that I hadn't expected. Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. We'll definitely put a, um, a link. Mm. Do you put a link to a book? Yeah, yeah you can, can put it. We have the technology, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, a link to Goodreads, maybe. Okay. Yeah. All right, yes, we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes of the podcast so people can find it if they're curious about it. And lastly, where can people find you? My website is melkettle.com, or you can just Google Mel Kettle, and I own the first half a dozen pages of Google, <laughs> oh, lovely. which is convenient when you've got an unusual name, um, and LinkedIn. LinkedIn and Twitter, they're my two social media hangouts, yep. and Mel Kettle is my Twitter handle, and put Mel Kettle into LinkedIn, and you'll find me there as well. Brilliant. Excellent. Thanks. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Presentation Boss podcast. It's been wonderful to talk to you and hear your thoughts around communication in general. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to chat. Thank you, Mel. (laughs) Thanks for listening to today's show. We'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know more, check out presentationboss.com.au slash podcast, where you'll find show notes for today with links to everything we've discussed. If you have a recommendation for someone you'd love to hear from in this show or think you have something of value you'd like to share, send us an email at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. We're always happy to hear your thoughts and take suggestions for future episodes. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Have a great week.